volume on here so you don't need it right near my lips. That would be uh, very helpful. Wonderful. Well, it's good to see you, as I've already said, here at the teaching service. We're going to get straight into the Word of God. We will be starting a new series. Thank you. We will be starting a new series uh, this month on the book of James. I mentioned that last week. That is going to start next Sunday. We'll start the studies in the book of James. Because I have something special that I want to share with you uh, this evening. Uh, we, as uh, if you've been at the services today, you'll have heard our senior minister talk about the fact that uh, we have been away at our Elim Pentecostal Bible Week. That's our Movements Bible Week. And during that time, they asked me to do a series of teaching on freedom from the law. And uh, one of the mornings, which uh, um, was reasonably popular with the people that came, was the morning where I taught on Abraham or Moses. Who do you follow? And because it made an impact on people, and so the feedback that I got was quite, well, I was surprised how much of an impact the teaching made on those that um, responded to me, that I felt I would share this with you this Sunday. I mean, we, we do teaching series. It's great to have the Sunday five o'clock service, isn't it? Week by week, you know it's there. And so um, th there's always another Sunday to teach. So I want to bring it to you because I believe that it'll touch your life. I believe it'll help you and, and that you will get something significant. And I do believe that by the end of today, you'll, you'll say to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm glad he brought us that special. I think it will help you practically in your Christian life. When, they, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, there was a problem. You see, Paul, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, before he came to Christ, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, he held the coat for those that stoned Stephen. Paul persecuted the early church. He was a Pharisee. He loved the law. He had a PhD in the law of Moses, if, if you like. He knew the law back to front. And then Christ met him in a powerful way on the road to Damascus and turned his life around. And he realized that his faith was all about a person, Jesus. It wasn't about rules and regulations. It was about Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. It was about the Holy Spirit changing his life and leading him forward. He had preached the gospel to Galatians. And Galatians, they had come from a totally pagan background. They weren't Jewish. They'd never heard of the Ten Commandments. They didn't know anything about the Old Testament. But Paul preached to them, Christ crucified. And they believed. And when they believed in the message of the cross and forgiveness, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Galatian church. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to walk in the principles of Jesus's new commandment, new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. They began to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians 6 two. They did unto others what they wanted others to do unto them. They had the principles of love and service and the Holy Spirit to guide them. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, patience, these things were coming out of their lives as they got closer and closer to the Lord 
the Lord's characteristics, the fruit of the Spirit, began to come through their lives. And they didn't need the law. Because the whole law is fulfilled in the one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They didn't need the law because they had a higher law, the law of love. They had a righteousness that was not of the Pharisees. You know, when you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, you're reading one of the most wonderful Spirit-filled sermons. In fact, the most wonderful Spirit-filled sermon you could ever read. In the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you need a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Everybody thought, what? We're to be more righteous than the Pharisees? Have you seen the Pharisees? I mean, everything that they do. Have you heard their praying? Have you watched their giving and their tithing? Have you seen how they act? But Jesus was saying, no, no, no. The righteousness of the Pharisees is, is, is legalism. It's all on the outside. What Jesus was looking for was a righteousness that comes from the heart. That's why he said, the Pharisees may not commit adultery, but that's not enough. They commit it in their hearts. The Pharisees might not commit murder, but that's not enough. They commit murder in their hearts. They might not steal, but in their hearts. The, the Pharisees give, but they give so everybody else can see them, and that's their Reward. The Pharisees may pray, but they only pray so that they'll get your congratulations. Everything that the Pharisees did was on the outside for the sake of men's uh, compliments. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is speaking about a righteousness that comes from the inside out. Christianity is a religion that's about the inside out. It's about soft hearts. That's why Jesus said, look, if you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. When you pray, don't do it in front of people. Go into your room. Shut the door. The only person that's going to know is the Father. Oh, and, he, and Jesus was speaking of, to Jesus, spirituality is not what you're like when you come to church because we're all on our best behavior on Sunday. Even me, I'm on my best behavior my suit, and all right, I don't have a tie on today, but dress for the occasion, it's Sunday. But what is my spirituality? How does God measure my spirituality? Here on the platform, how about when I get home tonight with my family? How about when nobody else is around, only the Father? Because how I act when nobody else is around, only the Father, that's my true spirituality. So the Galatians had this heart spirituality, but people came to them, Pharisees. And when Paul had left, they said, oh, forget about all this spiritual love and stuff. If you're a real disciple of Jesus, then you'll be circumcised and follow the law. And, um, and, and, and they, they believed and they said, yes, that's what we need. We need to follow the law. We need an outward morality to follow. We need laws and regulations and do this and don't do that. And, and those are the standards, the outward standards. And they began, began to forget the power of the Spirit. Paul would say in Galatians 3, You foolish Galatians, before whom Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed, this only I want to ask of you. When you received the Spirit, was it by simply hearing and believing? Or was it by works of the law? Having begun in the Spirit, are you going to be perfected in the flesh? Well, that's exactly what they were doing. 
turning from an inside heart walk with the Lord and the Spirit and love, they began to look for outward rules and regulations. And so I want to read this passage to you where Paul is making it very plain that the disciples in Galatians are to walk by faith, not by law. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 19, grace or law. Galatians 2, 19, 4. I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Here we see Paul saying, what are you doing? Why are you following the law? (laughs) He would later in Galatians say this, Tell me you who desire to be under the law, Galatians 4.21. He's saying, you want to be under the law? You have no idea what you're asking. It's like we're going in two directions. You want to know what following the law is? I followed it, Paul said. A Hebrew of Hebrews. I've already said he held the coat of those that stoned Stephen. I mean, that's, that's how zealous he was. And Paul is saying, I don't understand it. We're going in two directions. Galatians 4.12, he says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me because I became like you. When Paul was saved, he gave up the law. He found heart religion. And he was traveling in that day. He left the law. He died to the law that he might live to God. And he left the law behind. And he began to follow the Holy Spirit. He began to be moved by the gospel, the cross, and the love of others. And this was a new life of freedom. He was going in a different direction. But the Galatians, they had found him. They had been saved by grace. They'd been taught these things. But now they were going in another direction. They, Paul was where they were. Now, they wanted to go where Paul had come from. They wanted to be circumcised. They, they, they wanted to, um, to have an assurance that came from the law. And uh, Paul would say to them, you want to be Jewish. You really want to be God's people. Well, you need to learn some things. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. And during this passage that I read, I want you to notice how Paul contrasts the law and works on one side and the curse, law, works, curse on the one side. And then on the other side, look how he talks about faith, Abraham, the promise and the spirit. Galatians 3 verse 10. For as many as of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, 
that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So there Paul is saying, you don't want to live by the law, by the works. Because if you live an external religion, where you just try to live rules and regulations and a moral code, you know, thank God for a moral code, but that's not what Christianity is about, just living up to an external moral code, you'll be under a curse. You won't be under the blessing. You can't be justified and made right before God by the law, and you can't live life right through following the law. No, you need faith. The just will live by faith, trusting in God, trusting in promises and the promise of the Spirit. Paul would say to them, all right, you want to be a true Jew. You want to be God's people. And you're thinking, Galatians, right now, that in order to be truly God's people, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law. You need to go back to Moses. Is it Moses you want to follow? Paul is saying. The law of Moses, that is. Is that what you think? He is the model. And then Paul will say this. Well, if you want to go to Mo, if you really want to know what Jewishness is all about, if you really want to know what it's like, what it is to be a Hebrew, let's not go back to just Moses. Let's go back 430 years before Moses to the first Hebrew that ever lived. Does anybody know his name? Abraham. You want to go back to Moses? You think that's what you want? I'm going to go back further, Paul says. I'm going to take you back to Abraham. Who do you want to follow, Abraham or Moses? You think that Moses is the one to follow. I'm telling you, Abraham is the one to follow. Now, if you look behind me at the screen, you've got two um, stained glass windows uh, in a church, and there are the figure of Moses and Abraham. And I don't know if you can read which is which, but you can tell, can't you, who is who just by looking at them. Moses, of course, what does he have in his arms? He has the law, the rule book, the regulations. There he is. He's holding on to the law. And those that live by the law must do everything that's written by the law. If you follow the law, that's your code for life. But look at Abraham next to him. What is Abraham carrying in his hand? A staff a walking staff. I want you just to let this picture imprint on your mind for a few moments. We'll just keep this in shot exactly as it is. It's a beautiful shot. Thank you, camera people. Just look at that. Because I want to ask you, is your life one of carrying a book of rules and regulations, of standards and moral standards, and, and, and you're trying to stay up to this code because then you're following Moses. Or are you more like Abraham, who has a staff in his hand, symbolizing what? That, Abraham, that Moses' life was, was symbolic of a law book, a code. But Abraham has a staff because he was on a, thank you, a journey. Abraham was on a journey. And this is the key I want to bring to you today that it's not about rules and regulations, even if they're good rules and regulations. It's not about codes. It's about a 
journey. And Abraham is our model. He is the Old Testament prototype or example or model of the New Testament believer. Moses was a great man of God. And really, I'm not talking about Moses so much as Moses' law, okay? So Moses walked by faith and, and everything. But I'm talking about the Mosaic law. We don't go back to the Mosaic law. We go back to Abraham. And Paul in the New Testament again and again and again keeps using Abraham as an example. Paul will use Jesus as the perfect example, of course. Paul will even say, follow me as I follow Christ. But the other example he will use for our lives is Abraham. And we see this if we go a little bit further um, from, from where we finished in our reading. If we now go to Galatians chapter 3 and... Uh, Verse 16, no, verse 15. Galatians 3.15. Brethren, I speak in a manner of men. Though it's only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if inheritance is of the law, it's no longer of the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What does he mean by this? Well, he means this. Exactly what I've been saying. You see, when the law came... It didn't abolish God's dealings with Abraham. And think about this. For 430 years before the giving of the law, God's people walked with God without the law. I mean, if you went to Abraham when he was living on earth, if you went up to Abraham and said, Abraham, how many of the Ten Commandments could you name? Abraham would say, the Ten what? The Ten Commandments, Abraham. How many of them can you name? Name two. Abraham said, I, I really don't know what you're talking. Okay, name one, Abraham. You're, you're, you're a Hebrew. Name one of the Ten Commandments. Abraham would say, look, can you get out of my way? I have no idea what you're talking about. I've not even heard of a law. Isn't that true? 430 years later it was to come. If you'd gone up to Isaac, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you'd gone up to Isaac or Jacob and said the same thing, if you'd said to Isaac or Jacob, tell us about the Levites and the priests, they'd say, the who? Jacob might say, Levi? Well, that's my son and a pair of jeans, but I've never heard of a priesthood called Levites. What are you talking about? So, 430 years, God's people walked law-free. Well, then how did they walk law-free? Well, they walked law-free because they didn't walk by the law. They walked by the promise. They walked by the promise with faith in the promise giver. You know, Abraham was just like the Galatians because Abraham was a pagan when God found him. Think about that. The father of the Hebrews, the father of the Jews. He was a pagan when God found him. 
We know that in Joshua, it tells us that Abraham's father was a pagan worshiper. And uh, when God met Abraham, he didn't know anything about God. Nothing about God at all. God turned up and said, hello, Abraham, I've got a promise for you. I've got a promised land. I want you to leave your family and your home and come with me to this promised land. Oh, and by the way, you, your slave will not be your heir. You are going to have a child. His name will be Isaac, and Sarah will bear him. And what did Abraham do? He said, uh, don't know much about you, but I believe you. And Gen- Genesis fifteen six says, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him as righteousness. In other words, from that moment, God said, your sins are forgiven you. But what did he believe? He didn't know much about God. He just believed the promise. God says, I'm going to do this for you. Abraham believed and he was saved. But that wasn't the end of the story, is it? When we get saved, is that the end of the story? It's the beginning of the story. What story? Your journey with God. When Abraham believed God in Genesis 15 and it was accredited to him as righteousness, he took his first step in a life's journey of trusting God and discovering God. And how did Abraham discover God? He didn't have an Old Testament, did he? The first five books were written uh, a lot later by Moses. How did God discover Abraham? He discovered him by experience and by encounter on his journey to the promised land and on his journey to the fulfillment of the birth of Isaac. You see, Christianity is all about trust issues. You heard that phrase, trust issues? That person's got trust issues. You know, you ever heard that? How do you get trust issues? Well, you usually get trust issues through failed relationships, don't you? Or bad relationships. So perhaps you go, you know, you're classic. You go to school and the teacher or the headmaster says something, you'll never make anything in your life. And then from that moment, you've got a problem with authority figures. They're negative. Any authority figure, you've got trust issues. Or some father figure or boss figure or leader figure takes advantage of you. And, you th- and, and, and now, whenever you meet anybody who's in authority, immediately you distrust them. What have you got? Trust issues. What about, the, what about if you fell madly in love with somebody? And, um, and you, you thought that this was the one and uh, they led you along and then dumped you. And you say something like, I'll never trust another man all the days of my life. I'll never trust another woman all the days of my life. What's happened? You've got trust issues. Or you have a good friend and you think you've found the best friend in the world and you trust them with your innermost, you know, secrets and then suddenly you find out that they've betrayed you. What are you going to suffer from in building friendships again? Trust issues. Well, What about God? Uh, Learning about God is not just following rules and regulations from a book. No, Abraham had no book of rules and regulations. But he had to learn to trust that God was faithful to his promises. 
He had to grow in his trust of God and deal with his trust issues. And we are exactly the same. He didn't understand God, but he grew to know God as he found that God was faithful. We've already quoted, Paul has already quoted that the just will live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Is that right? 2 4? Or is it 4 2? I've got mixed up. 2 4, thank you. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. But if you read, and that is quoted by Paul in Galatians, it's quoted by Paul in Romans, it's quoted by Paul in Hebrews, or if maybe if Paul didn't write Hebrews, one of his close disciples did. It's a power, one of the most powerful scriptures. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. It, it turned the world upside down when Luther understood it. And the context of the just shall live by faith is this. Just before it, it says, write down the vision so that you can run. What vision? The promises of God. But then it says, but, but don't, don't worry if it's delayed. Don't worry if it's delayed. It's there, Habakkuk chapter 2. Because eventually it will come to pass. For the just shall live by faith, but the proud man shall lift up his face against God. So what is this? It means this. God promises. He tells Habakkuk to write it down. But then he says, look, if it doesn't happen immediately, trust me. If you're concerned it's not happened yet, just trust me. Because the righteous person will, 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 will trust. You know, the just shall live by faith can also be translated as this. The just shall live by his faithfulness. You can translate it either way from the Hebrew. The just shall live by faith or the just shall live by his, God's faithfulness. So Abraham had to learn about the faithfulness of God. He had to overcome trust issues. After all, he had his Ishmael, didn't he? Got to the place where he and Sarah thought, it's not happening. It's not happening. Either God can't do it or he's changed his mind or it's not happening. What God said, we've waited long enough. It's not going to happen. And they no longer trust. They had trust issues. So they said, look, Sarah said, take my handmaiden, Hagar, and have a chat. That's what, that's what must happen. We'll have to figure this out ourselves. And we know what a problem Ishmael was to Abraham. Not only that, but at other times he, he had his trust issues with God exposed. You know, he went all the way to the promised land, Canaan. And he must have thought, here I am in the promised land. Where's the red carpet for us to walk into? God must have everything prepared. We're here, Lord. And as Abraham was walking into the promised land, he was the only one going in there. Because there is a mass immigration out of the promised land into Egypt. Why? Because there was a famine in the land. So Abraham's going into the promised land, and everyone's going, where are you going? This is the promised land. He said, some promised land, there's famine. We're all off to Egypt. He's going, off to Egypt? You're going to Egypt? And Abraham thought, well, this is where I'm meant to be, but there's a famine. What am I going to do? Did he trust the Lord? No. He went off into Egypt. And that's where all the problems started. That's where uh, he gave up his wife. He said, she's not my wife, she's my sister. You know, he did that twice. And yet God had said, in Sarah, Isaac will come. He gave her up twice. 
And God, thank God that whenever we fall or have a fainting faith fit, God doesn't judge us. He restores us. He dusts us off. So he picks us up, dusts us down and says, you're going to trust me next time. And Abraham began to trust God, didn't he? He began to realize, you know what? He's never failed me. Sometimes there's been a delay, but his trust issues got less and less and less and less and less. And he began to trust God more and more and more and more and faint less and less and less until he got to the place where, you know what? He totally trusted God. That's where God wants us. You might say, well, I'm not there yet. Me neither. But that's the journey. And he came to that place, do you remember? And God said, Abraham, take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And at that point, Abraham had no trust issues at all in any way. And he thought like this. Well, that's strange. God's asking me to sacrifice my son. Hmm. And he reasoned with the reason of faith. Well, God has already told me that Isaac is my heir and that Isaac will have children. And that's my seed. He's already told me that. Well, Isaac's not had any children yet. So if God wants me to take him and sacrifice and kill him, that must mean that God's going to raise him from the dead. He reasoned with faith. He wasn't emotional. He thought, there you go. He was no trust. God's promised. Therefore, if God's telling me to sacrifice the Isaac, the Isaac's going to be raised. You say, is that what he thought? Yes. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. And in that faith's hall of fame, you just go down to where Abraham is, and it says, Abraham believed God that if he sacrificed his son, God would raise him from the dead. That, that's, that's where he is in Hebrews 11. That's what he was thinking. So he says to his servant, me and the boy were going up to sacrifice, and me and the boy will be, will, will, will be back. And Isaac said, there's no sacrifice, father. And he says, God will provide the sacrifice, son. Whoa. When you meditate on that moment of Moses, on the journey, he had reached the pinnacle, not just of his physical journey, but his spiritual journey. No wonder God was so proud of Abraham. Do you remember afterwards? God just can't stop praise, praising Abraham. You did this for me. You trusted me. I'm not just going to fulfill my promises. I'm going to swear you an oath of blessing. I am going to doubly, trebly, quadruply. I'm just going to pour out the blessing because you trusted me. That's not just Abraham. That's everybody before the law. 430 years. Isaac. Isaac believed God. He had learned to trust God. When famine came, did Isaac leave? What did he do? He sowed. And what did he get back? Come on, hundredfold. I like, I, you know what? I, do, I did enjoy myself at Elim, but they're so quiet. No, they're lovely people. But I'm like throwing these things out and asking them questions. And no one is answering. I'm going, okay. <laughs> Pentecostals. Where was I? Ah, yes. I mean, Isaac, Jacob. I mean, look at Joseph. How did he live his life? With a promise. It was a dream, wasn't it? As a little boy, he saw a dream, people bowing down to him. That one promise allowed him to discover everything about God. Because on the way, he just kept saying, well, this was the promise. 
Imagine how he felt. His brothers throw him into a pit and he's going, well, this doesn't sound like people bowing down to me. Then they sold him as a slave to foreigners. Mm, This doesn't sound like God's dream to me, but I trust God. And then he ended in Potiphar's house and things started to look up a bit. And then she lied about him. Well, that doesn't look like God's promises. Then he's put in prison. Then he has some prophecy, a word of knowledge for the baker and the cupbearer. And he's going, yeah, I'm on my way out. But we know that they forgot him. And during that time, what was happening? He was growing in his faith. He was learning not to have any trust issues, but to trust God. He was maturing as a Christian. How do you mature as a Christian? By outward regulations and laws and moral codes, even if they're good moral codes. By just conforming outwardly to what's expected uh, of you at church or in cell. You just outwardly conform. Are you going to really grow as a Christian by just towing the line, by keeping the standards, whatever they are? Are you going to grow? You're not going to grow at all. You have to grow like Abraham did. You've got to grow by the promise of God. God has got promise for your life. And God's promises are at different levels. God has got promises over Kensington Temple. Do you know that? And if you're part of KT, then those promises are for us together, not just for the senior minister. We are, not that you think like this, but some people think that the only person in a church that has to get the promises of the church done is the senior leader. But the, there's promises over this house. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. That's been a prophecy from the 80s. For us to fulfill our destiny, we have to become the most effective disciple-making church in the city, Canon James 1. These are prophecies and promises. There's many others as well. And we talk about these things. And so what does that mean? That means there's a journey. The glory of this latter house, greater. You don't just sit back. We begin to journey with that promise. We begin to plan. We begin to pray. We begin to minister and say it's going to happen, even if it looks like the glory is fading. We believe the glory shall be restored. We're expecting the tests and the trials. That's why we've got the promise to get us through. If we're meant to be, if our destiny is to be a disciple-making body, we have to make changes and plans. We're we're not just doing church. We're looking at the promises that God has given to us as a a church and the prophecies that, that are coming, and we're saying, these are the prophecies, follow them. They're your, they're our promises, like Abraham had his promises. But you know, also, God has a promise for you, personally, in this, not just as your part here. And your journey is entwined with Kensington Temple's journey. You're not just attending here because you're attending here and could be attending somewhere else. But your personal blessing and journey journey is absolutely entwined with the journey of the church that God has placed you. Because we are one body, many parts. Little finger can't go and live by itself. Oh, I've got my promise. I'm going to go and be a finger. What, apart from the body that you've been placed in, you won't survive much long, would you? God has spoken to you. I'll come back to this um, in a minute. Now, even Moses and the children of Israel were given a promise, weren't they? They weren't just handed the law. 
But Moses was given a promise. The children of Israel were given a promise, a personal promise. It was a promised land. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. It was a promise. And I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. Wow. No mention of the law, was there? But a promise. And the, what did the children of Israel do? Did they, did they get over their trust issues, the Moses generation? Come on, Kensington Temple. Did they get over their trust issues? Thank you. <laughs> no, they didn't get over their trust issues. They moaned and moaned and moaned and moaned. They got, you know, they got to the Red Sea and they thought, we're finished. God has led us out here. There's nowhere to go. The Pharaoh's armies are here. God got them through the Red Sea. We're finished. There's no water. We can't drink. He led us out here to die. Well, don't you trust him a little bit? He's got you so far. No, we're all finished. Oh, look, water. Ugh, the water's bitter. This is, mar this is bitter water. God led us all the way, then showed us this water, and it was bitter. What sort of sick God are you? Now, next thing, did they learn from that? No, we're all going to die. There's no food. Manna appears. But just enough for the day. Trust me for tomorrow. No, they took the manna and they stored it and it turned into maggots. And then they got bored of manna. And then Moses went up and the glory of God was there on the mountain. And they're like, that's a long time. He's been up there days. Uh, let's have a new God. Let's have a party and a golden calf. They were the most wicked generation that had ever existed of God's people. And God says it himself. If you read, if you read, for example, Hebrews chapter 3, it says it's a warning to the Hebrew Christians saying, Hebrews 3, don't be like them in the, wind, in the wilderness that hardened their heart against God's promise. But hear what the Spirit is saying. You see, it was the Holy Spirit that gave the promise. It was the Holy Spirit that would have anointed them to go into the land of Canaan and overcome. It was the Spirit that comes with the promise. But they didn't believe. And so what did God do? God gave them a law. Let's go to the law picture. God gave them the law. You know, it's interesting. We just read in chapter 3 about, you know, um, 430 years later, the law came. And inheritances of the law in verse 18 of Galatians 3. But in verse 19, we have this phrase. What purpose then for the law? In other words... From what I'm saying, you might say, well, if Abraham didn't need the law, Isaac didn't need the law, Jacob didn't need the law, Joseph didn't need the law, none of them needed the law, right for 430 years, and, and, and even the promise of the promised land didn't need the law, why was the law come in the first place? Well, the law came because of transgression and sin. It came because this great nation, the Israelite nation that was being formed, refused to walk by Faith in the promise like their forefathers. They refused to walk in trust, to live by faith, to deal with their trust issues. They refused. They tried and tested him, and God gave them a chance after chance after chance after chance until it was too late. They refused. So what did God do? Well, he did the same thing as you can see in this picture behind me. You know, you hear about classes that are out of control, school classes. And the kids are just out of control, and nobody can control them. And they send in a super teacher, a specialist. And that teacher goes in, and there he is behind me. 
He's got a rod in his hand. Uh, and basically he comes and says, right, these are the rules of my classroom. You may have had teachers before me, but now things are going to change. This is what I expect. You'll, you'll spoke when spoken to. You'll do your homework. You'll, and then someone shouts out, ah, get lost, sir. Detention, five days. Somebody else laughs. Headmaster's office after school. And he not only threatens the punishment, he delivers the punishment. And very soon, what happens through fear of punishment, you get the picture behind me. If you look at their faces, one of them's looking at that stick. Looks like he's been friends with that stick before. And uh, look at them. Now, you could walk in and go, wow, what a wonderfully behaved, obedient class. It looks so marvelous. But we all know that it's the stick that's ruling, that this is a good class on the outside only. You hear what I'm saying? But not on the inside, like the story of the young boy. And the teacher said, sit down, please. And the boy said, nah. He said, sit down. No. If you don't sit down, I am going to punish you. So the boy reluctantly sat down. And as he did, he said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You see, this is the best, the right, best righteousness that the law can do. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the um, righteousness of the Pharisees. It just deals with the outside. But God doesn't want to come along caning us and threatening us. He wants us to trust him. What a different way. Now, if you said to yourself, who was the God of Abraham? If you went up to Abraham and said, Abraham, who is God to you? He's many things, but if you could sum up the God of Abraham, how would you sum it up? Well, it's there in Romans chapter 4, 17. Earlier on, we, in, uh, earlier on in Romans 4, it says that w- that. Those that are the children of Abraham walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith earlier on in Romans 4. So we walk in his footsteps. He is the model. But look at this scripture. As it is written, this is talking about Moses who believed God. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. There's the promise. Before him whom he believed. Who did Abraham believe? What was Abraham's God like? Even God, who quickens the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. This is the God of Abraham. This is the God we must be be familiar with. He gives life to the dead. He gives life to barren wombs and brings up Isaacs. This is the God where when you look at what God calls you to do, often it looks like it's impossible, it's dead. It'll never change. But God loves to raise things from the dead. At the heart of the Christian faith is resurrection, isn't it? Last Sunday I taught on the importance of the resurrection. Without resurrection, Christianity is null and void. And we, above all people, are to be pitied in this life if there is no resurrection. So the God that you need to know is the God of resurrection. So I'm asking you, what things has God called you to do that are dead right now? Impossible right now. What about areas of your life that look like they'll never change? Character flaws, addictions, things where you think this area, this is just dead. Well, the God of Abraham 
quickens the dead. So don't fear situations that don't look like there's any life there, any change there. That's the very thing that God wants to raise up. And he calls those things that are not as though they were. Calls those things that are not as though they were. So we shouldn't just live like the Pharisees day by day with external morality. Be nice, be good, do your best, come to church. But we should be saying, what is God speaking about the future that has not yet happened? And he calls those things that are not as though they were. He says, Abraham, Isaac's as good as come. That's tens of years. Isaac's as good as come. He, he knows, for God, if, it, you know, if, it, if it's going to happen, it's as good as done. Calls those things that are not as though they were. Do you call those things that God has promised you as though they were? So I'm going through this, and I'm looking at Abraham as a pattern. And God speaks to me in my heart and says, where are your promises then, Bruce? talking about walking in the footsteps of Abraham, talking about how for 430 years they lived by the promise, faith in the Spirit, and no law. So what promises, Bruce, are you living by? And I'm like, oh, well, the general promises of God's Word, you know. Doing my best, helping make disciples, living the Christian life, doing what we're meant to do. And God says, no, 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 no. The personal promises... I have given to you and the church promises that are also for you to appropriate for the place I've planted you. What promises are you living by? I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I don't have a promise like Joseph or like Abraham. So I got myself a promise book, a notebook, and I sat down and I began to write in it all the significant things that God had spoken to my life and over my life from a little boy. God spoke to me as a little boy. Things happened, and I began to trace the things. I remember a major word given to me when I was at Kensington Temple Bible School. Things that happened, powerful experiences with God where promise came, and I'd never realized it. Some of them I could barely remember. Some came fresh back into my mind. I began to write them down. And then I began to open my spirit to hear God's promise. If there was a fresh promise, and God can give you a promise. God gave me a promise. There's a promise in this book. My my life is in this. There is a promise here for the fulfillment of my life and ministry. It's in here. Me and my fulfillment, it's there. The end result is there. But also, God can give you a promise for a week to live in. You can wake up and God can give you a promise for a day. He can give you a promise for your family. I've got promises for my daughter that God has given to me. Promises for my son. I've seen some of the promises of my son come to pass. They're in my book. I've seen them fulfilled. And God begins to give you sticky words. I call them sticky words. Why? Because it's like you're reading the Bible and then something comes out and sticks to your spirit. It's not just an interesting word, an informative word. God has highlighted it and is speaking it to you. Or you're hearing a sermon and something hits you. It's not just what the preacher says. God is speaking and the word sticks to your heart. And you say, God is speaking personally to me about a situation or about an event. Or someone prays over you or you get a prophecy. 
And these words can come from anywhere. I remember once I was on the way back. I'm giving you illustrations here because I want you to do the same. Because you have to walk like Abraham, so you need to know the promises of the house and the promises that God has given to you because that's your journey. The Christian life is a journey and you're following and believing and trusting the promise. And as you do that, you're discovering God. It's not about discovering God with your head in the, word, in the Bible. It's about discovering God in your heart through the promise and then experiencing the God of the Bible. I don't want to hear about the God of Abraham. I want to experience the God of Abraham and for him to become the God of Bruce and the God of whatever your name is. And and it was a prayer meeting and I was driving back. And it was a very powerful prayer meeting. But when I got in the car, I got a bit discouraged and I began to think of the things that, that... that I, 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 I should become and needed to become and the future. And I began to think, I can't do it. I can't be that person. I can't be that man you want me to be, God. I know what you're heading. I know where I'm heading. I know what you're asking. And I can't do it. I can't be that person. And I'm moaning and groaning. And I'm in my car from here. I'm still moaning and groaning when I get to Shepherd's Bush Roundabout. I'm still moaning. But in the background, I've got the football on. Because there's often football on Wednesday evening. So you get in the car after the prayer meeting. Well, I do. And you put the football. And I got it in the background. And I'm moaning and groaning and can't do this, won't be that. And I get to Shepherd's Bush Roundabout. And then suddenly somebody scores on this team. And everything's going crazy. And they come, it was a substitute brought on. It was the last few moments. So it was exciting. And, and the, the man cries out. The, the commentator cries out, Cometh the hour, cometh the man. And it hits me like a sticky word. And I thought, sorry, Lord. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. I'll be who you need me to be down that journey when I get there. If I'm here on the journey, I don't have to be the the person that needs to be further down. But when I'm further down, if I just keep loving you and trusting you, when I get to that journey, cometh the hour, cometh the man. That phrase is in my book, and that phrase hasn't been forgotten. And whenever I get nervous about the future journey and what God expects of me, I just say to myself, come of the hour, come of the man, and everything's all right. I'm living by a promise, and it's helping me experience God. Can you see how this is a relationship? We say, Christianity is not a bunch of rules or regulations. It's a relationship with Jesus. I don't even think people understand what a relationship with Jesus is. It's not just, hi God, here's my prayer list for today, or I love you, Lord. It's a journey. It's a journey, a journey. Christianity is not rules and regulations. It's not outward moral codes, even if they are wonderful. The law is amazing. The law is good. It's just nobody can live up to it, and it can't change you. I don't want a law book. I want a staff. His staff and rod will comfort me. I want a friend on the journey, the Holy Ghost. I want to promise. I want to know where I'm going and who I'm going to become. I want to see these things that are not as though they were. I remember New Year's Eve, year 2000, tabernacle. Anybody there? We had an all-nighter. Breakfast in the morning, remember that? Preaching all night. I went upstairs about 1 o'clock in the morning just to wash my face because I was feeling tired. And I was there and I just looked in the mirror and all of a sudden something happened on the inside of me. And as I was looking at myself in the mirror, eye to eye, I began to see in the spirit myself. Yet it was me in the future and it was me fully mature. It was me 
in the sort of equivalent of Abraham being at the place where he sacrificed Isaac. You hear what I'm saying? It was like a fully formed, fully matured, no, um, no trust issues Bruce. And I looked and I could see and it was more of an impression than, a, than anything else. But I was so full of joy. I, was, I had no fear. I was, and I was so full of joy. And yet I could see there were great responsibilities on my life, but I didn't mind. Why? Because I was so full of faith and joy and positive and healed. And, and I saw that. Or oh, was that a promise? That occasion is in my book. I want you to get a book. I want you to get a promise book. Not some tatty old thing. I want you to get something that means something to you. Something you can carry around with you wherever you go. I want you to take that book. And I want you to begin to write in you the things you know God has spoken to you since you was a baby, right up till now. I want you to write the things you know, and I want you to keep this here. And then when something happens, an experience with God, a prophecy, or just reading some of the most powerful words that have become sticky, life-changing words, were just in my daily Bible reading. Bang! Sticky. And you know it's sticky because it won't go away. But if you ignore... God's sticky words, sometimes you forget. I'm so glad I've been keeping this for a few years now. Because these are like the pieces of the puzzle that is my life. Past, present, future. Every time I get a little bit more from the Lord, it's another piece of the puzzle that makes the picture clear. See, the Christian life is not what many people think. It's not following Moses and his book. It's following the footsteps of Abraham. Do what Abraham did. Hear what Abraham heard. You say, I don't have any promises. You'll probably get one by the end of this evening. Because now your heart is open. And God will give it. Remember, it might be promise for a day. Sometimes he's given me a promise for a day. Or it might be a promise for a lifetime. Walk by the promises of God. By faith and trust. And by the power of of the Holy Spirit. I hope you're glad that I taught this today. And uh, we will start next Sunday with our studies in Galatians. God bless you all.